Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Paul says, as he's concluding his letter to Titus, he says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zanus the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask now that the words of our hearts and the meditations of our minds will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Give us the ability to rightly understand and apply your truth to our present situation as a body that lives and exists to bring glory to you, to exalt Jesus Christ, and to do so all by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So a lot of times when you're reading in the New Testament epistles, you sort of get to the end of the letter, and if you read the closing, uh, closing lines or verses at all, it tends to be very cursory, right? Just sort of a, a light skim, because this is just sort of like uh, irrelevant information or detail for us. Paul isn't talking about theology. He's not talking about uh, Christian living, or at least oftentimes that's what we tend to think. And so we, we glibly sort of pass over verses like this, and we don't really think much of it. I think, though, at least in the way that uh, the Lord is good and patient to grow us in our understanding and appreciation of the Word, that one of the things that, uh, that we learn as we come to uh, a section like we have this morning, even Titus 3, 12 through 15, is that while the, the closing of this letter does not sound exceptionally doctrinal, or it does not sound like Paul is really delving into a lot of important matters that pertain to a church. He's just, you know, he's got some business that he needs to wrap up. I think by virtue of the fact that Paul addresses some of these things to Titus, that it's actually in a letter, he took the time to actually put pen to paper and include this information in here, we ought to at least pause and consider some things that we can learn or glean from the things that Paul is concerned about, even as he wraps up his letter. All right, so, so we're going to try to do it in three ways. We're, three observations that we're going to make in the way that Paul wraps up his letter to Titus is going to be done this way. Number one, uh, we see in what Paul writes here in verses uh, 12 through 15 that God's people need good leaders. God's people need good leaders. Number two, that God's people need to learn to do good works. And number three, that God's people ultimately, for all of this, rest in His grace. That's it. God's people need leaders. God's people need to learn to do good works. And God's people ultimately rest in His grace. So, number one, the issue of leaders or leadership in the church. It's interesting that when Paul opens the letter to Titus, if you were with us in the very beginning, Paul has his initial greeting in the first four verses, Titus 1, 1 through 4. Titus 1, 5, where the actual body of the letter starts, Paul says to Titus, "'For this reason I left you in Crete, so that you would set in order the things that remain.'" 
And then apparently at the top of that list of things that need to be established and put in order is the establishing or the appointing of elders in the churches that are scattered around the island of Crete. In other words, Paul says one of the crucial things that need to be accomplished before all of this is said and done is each church group, each community of Christians, as they gather regularly together, identifying themselves as members of the body of Christ, they need to have men who are skilled in the Scriptures, who are godly in the way that they live and conduct themselves, who can live by example. They need leaders for the health, for the protection, for the security, for the longevity of the church. And then when we get to the end of the letter here, in 3.12 through 15, it's interesting that one of the things, it's not exactly the same, but Paul is again going back to the issue of leaders and their action or their, the roles that they play in the church. So by virtue of that, or what I mean by that is this, there are four, na- four names that Paul gives here, and he gives them in, in couples, in, in, in pairs, right? So the first two names that he mentions together are in verse 12, Artemis and Tychicus. I, th- I don't know if that's how you pronounce it or not, all right? We'll just call him Ty, all right? Artemis and Ty. Now, here's the thing. For Artemis, we don't have any clue who that person was. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, but Ty is. Ty actually shows up in Acts as a traveling companion with Paul, and he's also the one that Paul apparently gave the letter to the Ephesians and the the letter to the Colossians to, who we presume, because Paul mentions him in those letters, we presume that he's the one who actually delivered those letters to those churches. In other words, whatever we, we may know about Paul, we can say that his relationship with Ty here is one of partnership in the work of the gospel. That even if Ty was not himself considered an apostle, in an official sense, the way that Paul was, he was clearly identified with Paul and was considered a partner in that work. So he would have been a church leader. The second two that he mentions are in verse 13. He mentions Zenos, the lawyer, and he mentions Apollos. Similar to the the first two names that are mentioned, we don't know anything about Zenos, the lawyer. The one thing that we do know is that if God can save a lawyer, he can save right now. Okay, we don't know anything about Zenos, but we do know something about Apollos. Apollos was said to be someone in Acts who was gifted, who was mighty in the Scriptures, who was eloquent in his teaching who spent time in Corinth, who spent time in Ephesus, and actually from time to time, Paul and and Apollos actually sort of crossed over in the places where they stopped and stayed. So, Apollos is clearly a leader in the church, a a lead teacher at least, someone who's recognized. So, I think it's safe to say that even the other two people that we don't know much about, because they're paired with these other men that we do know something about, all four of these men probably ought to be considered, in some shape or form, leaders in the early Christian church. Okay? Simple enough. That being said, Paul is intending for Titus to rejoin him in Nicopolis, 
Paul has left Titus in Crete, meaning that at one point, Paul and Titus were both on Crete together. Paul leaves. Titus stays. Now that Titus is receiving this letter, when Titus gets to the end of it, he's going to read what we just read, which is that Paul wants him to come meet back up with him, to leave Crete himself, and to rejoin Paul in his work. Now, I take it that the fact that Paul says in verse 12, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, you then make every effort to come to me, is an indication that Paul thinks it's very important that there be someone to replace Titus before Titus leaves Crete to meet back up with Paul. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to read between the lines, right? In other words, Paul seems to be of the mind that for these young Christians for this, these fledgling Christian communities, that it is vitally important that they are given good, godly oversight by men that can be trusted to make sure that their roots are sinking down deep into the grace of God, that they're growing in the grace of Christ, that they're growing in the knowledge and understanding of His Word. And Paul is not willing to say, well, because they all have the Spirit, because they all love the Lord, because they're all gathered together, we'll just let them sort of, you know, group lead. No. Paul says, Titus, you get ready to come, but don't come until your replacement gets on the island and is able to pick up your work to oversee these Christian communities. Good, godly oversight is a gift that God gives to His people. Good, godly leadership is essential for a church to be healthy and to thrive. It is not optional. It's not a throwaway. Churches need leaders who are going to labor faithfully in the Scriptures to feed faithfully the sheep that belong to the flock of Christ so that they are cared for and nourished. They need good, faithful shepherds to watch out on the horizon to see what threats are coming from the outside, to warn them, to encourage them, to strengthen them. All of those things that leaders ought to provide for the church are good and necessary things. They are, in fact, good gifts that God gives to His people. Along with that, one of the things that we also want to consider is that the, the leaders that Paul is talking about at the end of the letter, right, they, they tend to be a little different than the leaders that he talks about in the beginning of the letter, right? In the beginning of the letter, he's talking about appointing elders in all of these churches, and the, the clear understanding seems to be that the elders that Titus is going to appoint in these churches, that, that he's going to set up, that those are leaders that are going to be raised up out of those congregations to stay and to remain 
with that church of which they're a part. Whereas the leaders that he's talking about at the end of Titus, this Artemis and Tychicus and Apollos and all this, these guys are in a unique role where they are doing more traveling ministry and leadership, and we would talk about maybe conferences today or intensive courses or church planning, that sort of thing. So you've got the the high-profile guys that Paul mentions at the end of the letter. We know them by name. We don't know any of the names of the elders that Titus appointed in Crete. Unknown, no names. Let me ask you this question, though. Who do you think, between the high-profile names that are mentioned here at the end of Titus and the no names that we know nothing about in the beginning of Titus, which group of leaders do you think had the biggest long-term impact on the Cretan Christians? I would wager that it would be the no-name, unnamed Christian leaders had the biggest impact the most lasting results and fruits of their ministry because when Titus goes... No, 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 let me even back it up further. When Paul is there on Crete, it's good to have Paul. Who wouldn't want to have Paul preaching and teaching, right? But Paul leaves, and then Titus is there. And then we find out here that Titus is only going to be here for a period of time. Titus is going to go. Someone's going to come take his place. But you know what? It's probably only going to be a matter of time before that person who came in to take Titus is going to go off somewhere else. All of these people are going to come and go. They're going to be in and out. You know who's not going to be coming and going? The elders of those churches. It wasn't too long ago, just in the span of history at least, that people referred to elders or to pastors as physicians of the soul, right? You have medical doctors, you have spiritual doctors. These guys look after your physical material being physicians of the soul. We're concerned about, we're concerned about the heart and the mind, particularly as it pertains to, to life in Christ. I think one of the helpful ways to to consider or to conceive of the importance of elders in a local church is to think of them as something like primary care physicians. The apostles, those guys, those are those are the elites, those are the specialists, right? There's a problem in the church some sort of sinful cancer that's working its way, and what do you do? You call the oncologist. He comes, he deals with the cancer. He says, this is what you need to do to, to eliminate this. It takes radiation, it takes chemo, it takes whatever else, or we got to do some surgery here. You do that, and once it's done and everything's settled, okay, you good, you got it? All right, good. I'm off to the next problem. Just because the specialist does his work on the patient and then moves to another special case does not mean that God's people are without the need for continuing spiritual care, right? Along those same lines, we all know, just in a, in a practical sort of way, when we think about the, the, the analogy that we're using here of medical specialists 
and primary care physicians. Who knows you best? Your primary care physician knows you best. If you have an acute need that has to be addressed that your primary care physician cannot deal with, even when you go to that specialist, you know what they're relying on? They're relying on the notes and the information that your primary care physician has accumulated with you over years and years of practice that they're now sharing with them to say, you need to look at this and you need to know this before you do any of your work. A specialist can, take, can, can listen to your heartbeat and can say, your heartbeat sounds odd. You've got this, it sounds like a regular beat, but then all of a sudden it's like it's syncopated, bump. Bum, 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 right? That, that doesn't sound like a normal heartbeat. Primary care physician says, well, actually, for, for Bob, that's normal. He's just sort of an odd, quirky guy when it comes to that. Why does the primary care physician know that, but the specialist does not know it? Because the primary care physician is the one who has spent time with Bob, who has listened to his heart beating year after year after year, and knows, well, this is a unique feature about Bob that no one else could appreciate or that no one else would guess, but I know it because I've had five years with him. I've had 10 years. I've had 15. Listen, I'm, I'm belaboring this. The simple point is this. We desperately need regular primary care soul physicians. We need people who are looking after our spiritual health and vitality who know something about us. We need leaders in the church, not just that we know and recognize, but leaders in the church who know and recognize us so that when we start to look a little weird or act a little off, they are able to pick up on that and come and say, hey, Jonathan, you said this in that setting, or I noticed that lately you've had, and that, 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 are you okay? Someone that knows us, that can provide that kind of attention to detail. Let me, let me take it a step further. All right, this is how much can we beat a dead horse with the physician analogy. Imagine that you are going to meet up with a friend that you haven't seen for a couple weeks or a month or something like that. No, I mean, no, no particular reason. You just haven't had a chance to catch up. And so you go and you meet up with them. You knock on the door. They open the door. And as soon as they open the door, you notice that something does not look right. Their, their color is not right. So you say, Sam, Sue, who, you know, whoever it is, are you okay? You've you don't look right. You, you, might want to go, you, you might want to go see your doctor. Sam or Sue says, Merritt, it's 2022. Have you ever heard of something called WebMD? I thought that maybe I looked a little odd in the mirror, and so I just sat down at the computer, and I pulled up a couple articles, and I've got it figured out. I'm, I'm taking care of it. I got it. You're a little bit more persistent because you're not so sure that self-diagnosis by WebMD is the best way for your friend to go. So you say, I, 
uh, I, I don't know. You know, it seems like maybe if you had this figured out, maybe you still wouldn't be looking this way. Maybe you really ought to be with your doctor. Maybe you ought to say, say no, 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 you don't understand. It's not just that I, I, I read on WebMD, right? Dr. Oz has a podcast. <laughs> That's in my feed. I listen to him regularly. I know about nutrition. I know about all the new medical breakthroughs that they're making. I've got it. I don't need to go see my doctor. I've got a podcast. You press a little further. I notice also, along with the odd color that you have, that your arm also seems to be sort of bent out of shape a little bit. What is going on there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I may have broken my arm, but I don't need to see the doctor. I know that's what you're going to say. I watched an episode of Chicago Med, and I saw them reset a broken bone, put it in a splint. I watched that. I even went back and watched it a second time. That episode was so good. I've got it. Now listen, a lighthearted way to talk about these sorts of things. You understand this is the way that too many Christians think about the role, the importance, the essential nature of having good Christian soul physicians in their life, right? I don't need to be seen. They don't need to see me. I've got articles, I've got podcasts, I've got live streams. I get what I need. I can self-diagnose, I can self-medicate, I can do what I need to do, and that is not the way that God has set His church up. It is not the same to sit at home watching a live stream, even if you are watching in the moment while all of this is happening. It is not the same being at home as being in here with your brothers and sisters where they can lay eyes on you and you can lay eyes on them. Not the same. It is not the same to go shopping for a physician of the soul online and to find someone that you think meets your needs because you think you have been able to diagnose your spiritual state or your spiritual condition. I have news for you. There are none of us who are equipped to be able to self-diagnose exactly where we are in the spiritual life. I don't care who you are. Now listen, God by His grace and through the work of the Holy Spirit, He does convict, He does reveal, He does show us things. He does do that. There are things that the Lord will show us as we spend time in His Word, as we spend time in prayer, as we walk with Him, where He doesn't need to use anyone else. He does do that. I'm not denying that. But what we are trying to emphasize is that if embodied flesh and blood, real-time, real-space leadership were not important, Paul would not spend time telling Titus, you need to make sure that these churches have shepherds in their midst. If good godly leadership was not important or essential, Paul would not tell Titus, you wait, do not come until I have a replacement for you. We are not going to leave those churches alone. 
The other thing that we might want to say, looking at these specialists that are sort of moving in and out in verses 12 through 15 here, is that we ought to recognize that by virtue of the fact that Paul was at Crete and then left, and left it to Titus, and then Titus is there at Crete for a while, but then he's going to leave and leave it to another man, it's a good reminder that no matter how big or important the name is, no one is irreplaceable. No one is irreplaceable. You know who was not here last week in our service? Oh, you're breaking my heart. I wasn't here. <laughs> oh, man. See, no, <laughs> no one is irreplaceable. I wasn't here last week. Did, did that mean that there was no service? The church, well, Merritt's not here. What are we going to do? No. God in His goodness and kindness to the body of Edgewood says, I can give you more than one person who can preach, who can teach. And so JT comes up and he preaches. Does a fabulous job, by the way. I actually went back and listened. Andy is not here this morning. What do we do? Do we say, oh, well, I guess we can't sing praises to the Lord. Andy's not here. No, Nathan steps in, and Nathan serves. Listen, all of us in our roles in the Christian life, whether you are a husband or a, a wife, a parent, any role that you have in God's kingdom, you are just a temporary placeholder. You're a steward. You have been given a temporary responsibility to serve the Lord faithfully for the good of the people who have been entrusted to you, and there's coming a day and time, if the Lord doesn't come back first, where you are no longer going to be filling that role. And here's the shocker, the world is going to continue to function without you. The world is going to continue to function without us, and it is good that that is the way that God has designed things. One of the things that I love about Edgewood I love the fact that the men who preceded us the leaders who were before us did not build a cult of personality. I love the fact that Edgewood, for so many years, has had so many godly men and women that have made much of Christ and very little of themselves. We want to strike a good balance where on the one hand we know, we recognize that if God has determined to give leaders, shepherds to His church, that that must be a good thing because God is a good God. 
But we also want to know and recognize that these gifts that God gives in men and women to lead, to teach, and instruct, they are not the ultimate gift He is. The best thing that those leaders can do, men or women, whatever role they play, is to point others to the greatness of Christ. And to guard and to keep watch over their souls so that they won't be tempted to fall away or to stray. God's people need good leaders. Number two, God's people learn to do good works. Paul says in verse 14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Hold your place here. Go back to Titus 2, verse 14. In 2.14, Paul says that God, through Christ, redeemed us, redeemed a people for Himself, a people for His own possession. At the end of verse 14, these people that He has redeemed for Himself, He has redeemed and made them to be what? Zealous for good works. I take that to mean that one of the things that God has done when He by the power of His Spirit in that passage, when He regenerates a dead heart, that heart has a feel, has a beat, has a longing to do good things that reflect the goodness of the one who gave them life. We actually desire to do good, whereas before we desired to do whatever we thought was good or whatever, whatever served our purposes. We delighted to do sin. Now we delight, we desire to do good works as God has revealed it. Go down a little bit further. Look at 3.8. Telling Titus that I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to do what? to engage in good deeds, to be careful to or to be intent on engaging in good deeds. So, in chapter 2, verse 14, zealous, desiring to do good works. 3, 8, intent on doing good works. Now, in 3, 14, Paul says our people must learn to do good works. Here's what I think we ought to consider in a statement like that when you put it alongside of similar phrases in 2.14 and in 3.8. The fact that we desire, because of our new nature in Christ, because we desire to do good works, because we want to be careful and intent and we want to look for opportunities to do good works, those things may be present and yet we can be not really sure about how to actually do the good works. Right? We, we all know this instinctively. You see someone grieving the loss of a loved one, and there's something in your heart, right? The Spirit draws your heart to that person. You feel like you ought to try to say something to them. You're like, I don't have a clue what to say. 
And so rather than saying the wrong thing, you don't say anything and you back up, right? You don't know. You don't know the good thing to do in that situation. You want to do it, but you haven't learned what it is just yet. Or you make the attempt to do the good thing, and by the time you're done with the good effort, whatever it is, whether it's a kind word or some sort of act of service or something like that, you actually come away thinking, I don't know if I may have actually done more harm than good when I was trying to do good in that situation. Here's what I think we, the encouragement we can take from 314. It is okay not to know how to do good works perfectly. It's okay. If there wasn't trial and error involved, if there wasn't the need for us to grow in our ability to do good to one another, Paul would not have used language like they need to learn to do good works. There's a training process involved. We don't come by this naturally. We don't have it worked into us by instinct, where we just pick it up automatically. Practically speaking, here's what this means. If you're here, if you're a member of Edgewood, you know that, you, that we are members of one another, that we ought to be doing good to one another, but you have not found ways to actually do good to your brothers and sisters in Christ, whether that's on your own spare free time or whether that's in an actual organized ministry here at the church, you haven't found an opportunity to do that because every time you think about doing something, you say, but I don't actually know what to do or I don't know how that works. You ought to go back and you ought to read what Paul says in 3.14. It's okay if you don't know, you're going to learn. Let me say a word to you older, wiser, more mature Christians who have learned a little bit more, perhaps, than what some of your other brothers and sisters have had. It is okay if a younger, more immature Christian inserts themselves into a situation to try to do something good and yet makes it sort of messy. That is okay. We ought to be patient with a Christian brother or sister who desires to do the good, but is still trying to learn what that actually means. We ought not to cut them off or to be condescending or to say, this is more trouble than it's worth. Will you please just stand over here? I'll do it myself. That's not the way that Christians learn how to do good works. So there's a reciprocal relationship where if you're an older, wiser, more mature Christian, one of the best things that you could do when you're about to go do something for another Christian or for another member or a neighbor, maybe one of the things you could do was get on the phone and call someone and ask a younger Christian to come alongside with you. Why don't you ride over with me while I deliver this meal to this family that just had a baby? Or, I'm going to go talk to so-and-so who's grieving the loss of a father or a spouse. Would you like to write a note? I'll take it over for you. Grandparents and parents, you have a golden opportunity to train up the next generation of the church to look for opportunities to do good things by getting your children involved. 
that is slow, <laughs> that is slow messy, at times painful and tedious work to bring your children in and to give them an opportunity to serve. Oh, but the dividends. The dividends that it pays in the future. We ought to be in a posture of learning. All of us should be. Not just desiring to do good works, not just intent on doing good works, but learning, being more skilled, more effective, better equipped as we continue to walk with the Lord to do good things to one another. And then last thing that we'll say, number three, God's people need good leaders. God's people need to learn to do good works. Number three, God's people rest in His grace. If I'm Paul, my inclination, or at least, let's say it this way, at least what I'm going to be tempted to think when I'm leaving Crete and I'm leaving Titus to continue to do the work, sight unseen, right? No phones, no internet, no FaceTime. This is probably the first time, this may be the first time that Titus has heard from Paul since Paul has left the island. I would be awfully tempted to leave the island of Crete to go to my next place of service and to be in knots on the inside thinking, I don't know what's going to happen. If only those people could have a little bit more time with me. I don't know if Titus is up to it. Or, if you're one of the Christians who are on Crete and you're seeing Paul sail off into the sunset, you may be tempted to think, good night. We had Paul and that was good and now he's left us with his lackey. Titus doesn't have near the expertise, doesn't have near the experience that Paul does. This is not going to end well. And then a little while later, a year or so later, you find out that Titus, even when you've just begun to warm up to him, Titus is now about to leave and some newbie is going to come in and take his place. Why doesn't the whole thing just fall apart? It probably should have. It probably ought to have fallen apart. It doesn't fall apart because of the way that Paul ends the letter. Grace. Paul prays that the grace of God would be with his people. God pray, or, or Paul prays that God's grace would equip new young leaders to be faithful, effective shepherds in their church as new elders. Paul prays for these Christian communities, and he asks that God's grace would be sufficient to equip them for every good work, that He would renew them, that day by day they would become more like Christ and less like their old Adamic nature. Paul prays that the grace of God in His Word, would be powerful to transform them and to hold them in the faith. Paul prays that the grace of God through the power of His Spirit would do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond anything that he could ask or think. God's grace is what all of this hinges on.
If on paper you have good leaders in a local church, but you don't have God's grace, it's going to amount to nothing. If you do good works and it is apart from God's grace, it is empty and hollow. If you strive, if you labor, if you build, if you guard, if you watch, and you are not doing that with the grace of God, it is all in vain. The grace of God is what brings us into this new life, brings us into the kingdom. The grace of God is what sustains us in this life together. And ultimately, it's the grace of God that's going to see to it that we make it all the way to the end. We desperately need God's grace every single day. So let's actually close this time in the Word praying for God's grace. Let's pray. Father, how unbelievably good and kind You are to give to us what we need to give us the ability to see the glory of Jesus Christ through the eyes of faith, through Your written Word, as we heard the voice of our shepherd calling to us. Thank You that in bringing us into this new life, by placing us into the family that we know as the church, that You have given to us all that we need for accountability, for fellowship, for correction, for admonition. Thank You for the, the shepherds that You have brought into our lives to encourage us, to direct us, to guide us. Thank You that in our confusion, in our imperfections, as we strive, as we desire to live the life that You've called us to, thank You that by Your grace, You, you educate us, You teach us how to do the good that You have created us to do. Father, we ask that You would keep us mindful that we are debtors to grace. That there would be a spirit of humility here at Edgewood that permeates everything that we do. That looks to quickly give glory and honor to You for any good that comes out of anything that we do who acknowledges the grace of God made evident and effective in the person of Jesus Christ by the power of Your Spirit. And do it, Father, in a way that we can sing for joy, confidently, knowing that You are in our midst. These things we pray in Your name. Amen. Let's stand.
throne. Come, let us adore Him. Behold our King. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore Him. Let's close with this prayer from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.